we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, dear listener, this is a podcast, Iron Fist Velvet Glove, episode 352. I'm Trevor. Over there on the screen beside me is Paul from Canberra. How are you going, Paul? Greetings from Ngunnawal country. Yes, thank you. And Paul has joined <laughs> at the last minute because Joe is a last minute cancellation. He's got a client who needed stuff done and so he's working. And I thought, well, who wouldn't be busy tonight? <laughs> and, Paul, <laughs> and could and provide quiet place, you know. <laughs> and could provide great input for us. So thanks, Paul, for for joining. So be gentle with Paul, dear listener, because he hasn't had a chance to read the notes and I sent him only three hours ago, probably about 35 pages of notes. So I did, um, did scheme them. Yeah. So you've got a rough <laughs> idea of where we're rough idea of where we're heading. So, so anyway, I'm not even sure where we're heading half the time of this podcast. We get sent down little rabbit holes and things like that. So if you're in the chat room, say hello and uh, hello to Ross, who's already in the chat room. And make plenty of comments. We'll try and get to them. I think I've been a little bit better in recent times about reading the chat and trying to get you guys involved. So I'll try and do it when I can. It's not always easy, but yeah. So what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, at the end, I'm really hoping that we'll get to talking about this this phenomena of cultural Marxism. So I've heard it bandied about a lot in different discussions. And hey, this is a podcast where we study society, and if we don't really have a grip on what cultural Marxism is, probably can't really call ourselves amateur students of society, really, Paul. So I figure it's time to look at it and try and nut out just the basics of what it is, where it came from, and what we should think when we hear it. So uh, are you, perchance, some sort of expert on cultural Marxism? That would be helpful. Wouldn't that be nice? So... But I feel like it's going to be a really interesting, like I I did sort of catch that discussion like in the email very quickly and I one thing I suppose I extracted from that was that Marxism in, actually encompasses a lot of things and a lot of parts and it's been sort of really criticized for the bits that capitalism really hates mm. and there's a lot more to it than just you know tearing down the factories or kind of that sort of stuff yeah i think it's being used by figures on the right as just a general slander of a leftish idea that they don't like and people are conditioned in our society to be very fearful of anything to do with marx because that means Stalin, and that means gulags, and so of course it yeah, must be yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah, I had a guy I proposed at one of the events for the Woodcraft Guild that I'm a part of that you know because we occasionally sell stuff and it's nice for the guild to have stuff to sell. And why don't we have like a day where we work together and make things individually that the, that we can then give to the guild 
to sell. Mm-hmm. The guy in the charge of the sales sig says, oh, that sounds like communism. <laughs> like, do you want us to wa- raise money for the guild or not, man? And did you say, yeah, I am? <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get on to that at some point. Yeah. So anyway, before we do it. In the chat room, Ross says, yes, Jordan Peterson's favourite reference for reasons. And Watley the Wizard says, bye, Trevor. Enjoy the podcast. What's going on, Watley? You're sort of, you're in and you're out, are you? So you, I don't understand that yeah, comment. Yeah, just said, hooray, another Paul. So. Yeah, and it seems, I hope you're staying, Watley. Stay with us, Watley. Stay yeah. with us. Yeah. All right. But before we get to that, because, you know, we want to fill up a good two hours here. So well, let's do a little bit of a preamble on a few things that are happening in Australia, a bit of current affair type stuff. So rattle through a few things. First of all, happy birthday, Shay, if you're out there listening. Shay's birthday today. Happy birthday. Secondly, as you know, dear listener, I'm a big fan of the John Menadue blog. Paul, do you read the John Menadue blog? No, not as often as I would like. You're Um, relying on me to curate it for you, are you? I do. Occasionally I check in, but I've got, so many other, like, you know, everything from Independent Australia and Crikey and yep. Guardian, you know. Sure. Yeah. That's fine. So you, you can I'm glad you, you're keeping, up, keeping me up to date. Yeah. So I think it's a great blog. Now, there's a, I just stumbled across an interview on, on YouTube where Friendly Geordies interviewed him. And I think it's an old interview from a couple of years ago. But anyway, I hadn't seen it before and it was very interesting and he spoke about his time when he was basically Goff's right-hand man, the sort of head of the Prime Minister's department. He sort of worked with Goff when he was in opposition and then worked when he was in government. And then he was also a, an editor and higher editor of The Australian or an extremely high up in a number of Murdoch papers. And he also had an overseas posting, I think it was Japan, might have been China, but as an ambassador. Like his experience is amazing. And hmm. so he just had interesting things to say. So if you're interested in those topics and what Rupert Murdoch was like and the control that he that he had over his staff and how people eventually figured out they didn't have to be told. They just knew what Rupert wanted and they just did it the way Rupert would want it. So Google that on YouTube, John Menadieu and Friendly Geordies. There'll be a link in the show notes. Highly recommended that. And the other thing that I read a lot is crikey, and if you're a reader of it as well, Paul, you would know that they are being threatened with defamation by Lachlan Murdoch. Mm, yes, yes. Okay. I really wanted to point, bring that to everyone's attention because I think it really shows, firstly, like you as a lawyer or an ex-lawyer, Trevor, would have some feeling for how legal arguments that are advanced and people put forward, you know, legal letters saying we will, you know, we will sue if these conditions aren't met kind of thing. Mm. And you read the lawyer's letters from Murdoch and they're almost, it's hard to believe that they exist in the same reality as the rest of us. Right. They're just setting things up for potential actions. So no doubt the relevant law requires you to go through a process and to state what you want and state in quite specific detail your allegation and the remedy you want. And then if they don't do it, you're off to court. So they're just sort of, 
if it sounded that way, it's probably because it's being framed to match a legislative requirement mm. in terms of detail. But in any event, it's to do with like, the... What was your sense of it then? Well, I didn't read those in detail. I just skimmed them because Crikey has basically published the legal letters that have been toing and froing between their lawyers and and uh, Lachlan Murdoch's lawyers, and it's to do with the Caput riot, January 6th, and Crikey wrote something which more or less said something along the lines that the Murdochs were like co-conspirators with mm. Donald Trump. And it, Murdoch is his unnamed co-conspirator, I think was the last line in the article. Yes. And, and somehow Mur- Lachlan Murdoch assumed that that was him. As part of the Murdoch family, he's saying he's defamed. And it's all got to be read in context, etc. But the main thing I think I read from Ronnie Salt in Twitter made the point that if this goes to court, then crikey would be able to say, show us all documents and all communication you have relating to the January 6th riot, in particular what communication you had with Donald Trump. Hmm. as part of discovery. And there's no way the Murdoch family is going to want to produce any of that communication. So she was suggesting that there's, Crikey's kind of aware that there's no way Lachlan Murdoch will pursue this because there's no way he would risk being forced under discovery in a legal case of having to produce all of those documents because it could obviously be quite embarrassing depending what various members of the Fox and Murdoch empire said. So I think she might be right. I think Hmm. think he'd probably shy away from it because he wouldn't. You know, we've seen a few cases, Paul, where people have sued for defamation and it's backfired on them lately. Christian Porter and Robert Smith and a few others where they kick things off and probably wish they didn't. Well, also that, because I, I happen to be listening to a really fantastic Big Ideas podcast, an interview with Anita Height, if I remember rightly, an Aboriginal author, and she was one of the people that took Andrew Bolt to court and won mm-hmm. over his defamation and the, the so the thing that sort of like I get this real sort of resonance there in that both Bolt and I feel in Lachlan Murdoch's lawyer, lawyer's letter make these incredibly like incredibly exaggerated claims and basically kind of know that you're there it's on the other side to then prove them wrong by being reasonable Mm -hmm. and it really can't remember who said it but it's like it's just the bullshit factor of you know it's it's an order of magnitude harder to disprove bullshit than it is to say it Mm. and so you know when there is a bit of haggling in this it's okay we're going to be we're threatening you, so we'll we will reach for every possible thing we can find and exaggerate it and put it out there, and then wait for your response. So you know that is yeah, part yeah. of part of the thing is well, you may as well reach for the stars and then 
and then settle for something less. So it looks like you're settling. Well, yeah, and but vice versa, I think, you know, like if, I, I think you're probably right that it is going to be very difficult for – it's going to be very difficult for Murdoch to prove that his specific – those specific claims that his lawyer made, all 10 of them, were true. But you know what? There's no penalty and- for having three of them struck out. So, for example, if you, you think that if as long as they get one, like it's a shotgun kind of approach, co- correct? There's no, there's no, okay. no penalty for listing ten things, of which three of them are a little bit dubious. It's like I might as well throw them in. If I get struck down, the other seven still stand. It's not like you you lose anything by having those three. So you might as well just throw it in there. It, that's the stage that they're at. So that's quite normal, I think. Yeah, I have to admit, I. Feel like it's even it. It's even hard for them to prove one of those conclusively. In that, you know, because there was that recent law case. Finally, the West Australian Court decided, and the defamation suit between Premier of WA. Oh yes, is Gowan and. Yeah, and Mark McGowan Clive, and, and Clive Palmer. Palmer and where he awarded Mark McGowan $20,000 and Clive Palmer $5,000 mm. and basically said that they yes technically what they what both of them said could be deemed defamatory but the award was minimal because basically Clive Palmer had already trashed his reputation right. and Mark McGowan's hadn't actually suffered mm-hmm. as a result because he won an increased majority. So very hard to see either of those people making the claim that... They couldn't uh, show a lot of damage because they are already... Yeah, yeah. That, like it, It's hard to believe that Lachlan Murdoch has been so trashed in reputation by the article and crikey by that one sentence... Mm as opposed to any of the other coverage that he's done, mm. that, that, that that he's suffered, and he still seems to be perfectly happy in, you know, the top job. He's not being hounded out of that or anything. He's not hasn't lost anything by it. It will mm. be very hard to show that, in fact, Lachlan Murdoch has suffered any material loss by that coverage, and that seems to me to be the the point not that the things that they said were in theory not nice to their reputation but the practical effect was water off a duck's back yeah yeah i agree yeah. i have to say actually do anything and therefore it mm. didn't it wasn't actually defamatory prob- prob- and if you, yeah. and well it was defamatory defense. but it was worth it was just so negligible so look it might be one of those cases where we have to say maybe america's actually got better laws because they tend to have laws where i think if you are a public identity then it's almost anything's possible for public identities so public figures i think that's a sort of a difference in the us law but certainly ours is due for a bit of an overhaul because rich and powerful people are using it as a means of of controlling media that might be against them so yeah I think it's something we can look at. The the landscape of media and personality and defamation in the and damages in the US is I feel like it's a 
it's a very different, it's almost an alien landscape compared well, to what we sort of see there. But they don't have in nearly the, the sort of defamation cases we have. This doesn't happen. No, but there are, and I haven't done any <laughs> legal reading up on legal cases, but there are still plenty of, like, the the free speech argument gets used in a very one-sided direction in the US from the powerful to the less powerful. Yeah, but I think in defamation law it might be a case where it's the free speech aspect is working to downplay the ability of the rich to silence the poor. So I think it might be yeah, a case I, where it's actually working to some extent. So better than else, one of the rare occasions. Oh. We've certainly had, as as you know, we've seen with you know Dutton winning the lawsuit against the guy in I think Queensland who defamed him on Twitter, and you know a bunch of things like that. You know, people just suing for defamation in Australia because it means that I'm going to drag you through the court and shake you out for you know for lawyers' fees. Mm. So. Fortunately, yeah. we haven't had a defamation action on this podcast so far, fingers I'm, crossed. I'm trying to keep it that way. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. So just following up from the Morrison fiasco with his ministries, and I think since we last talked, he yeah. he had his press conference and, you know, the overwhelming thought I had at the end of that was, thank God we don't have to listen to this guy anymore. It's, it's so good not to have to listen to him the way we yeah, used to have to. Yeah. But a few characters came out and provided comments and one of them was John Howard. So I'm going to play a John Howard clip for everybody now. See how we go. I'll brace myself. Yeah. I think most people, and allow me an expression of this opinion, most people are going to say, well, that's interesting, but let's get on with the present and the future. I think there's a number of people in your own party who are calling on Scott Morrison to resign from Parliament. Should he at least do that? No, I don't think he should do that. Apart from anything else, it's not in the interest of the Liberal Party to have a by-election at the moment in a very safe seat, particularly as in the state of New South Wales, we will face a state election in the early part of next year. So. If anybody cares about my party, the Liberal Party, then the last thing I'll do is be requesting unwanted by-elections. That sounds like an, an answer based in expediency when this is a matter of principle. Well, you say it's a matter of principle. It's up. You don't think it is? No, I don't think it's something that is so reeking with principle as to require an unwanted, expensive, unnecessary by-election. So his first and best reason why Morrison shouldn't resign was because it wouldn't be in the interests of the Liberal Party. What happened to the interests yeah. of Australia, Paul? Well, no, no, what's puzzling me here is if it's a safe Liberal seat, why is it a bad thing to have a by-election when you could just get another Liberal candidate? I, I, if it's safe... Mm. I guess and you're saying it's it not. <laughs> yeah, that's it true. Not safe. Good point. He knows it's not safe. There's no way that it, with with this on top of everything that Morrison, like all it's going to take is a teal candidate to get up in, in Cook and votes will flood in, I would say. Mm. 
Yeah. So, but I just it's the shamelessness that you could say, well, of course he shouldn't resign. That wouldn't be in the interest of the Liberal Party. It, it just it just boggles my mind the shamelessness of these things. So, yeah. I'm just going to grab another one here when we're talking about shamelessness, and this one's Barnaby Joyce, and and again. See if, see if you can see a theme happening here in the reasons here. I initially assumed, and to be quite frank, if I'd gone into bat, I had negotiated an extra minister, and I thought, well, I've got to ask myself three questions. Is it legal? Well, it is legal under Section 64. It can do that. Is there anything I can do to change it back? No. Has he got the capacity to renegotiate my extra minister that I just dealt that I just dealt into the National Party hand. Yeah, you could just say, yeah, I'll fix your problem, mate. I'll just take the ministry back off you. It's gone. Now, problem fixed for you, problem fixed for me. Bad outcome for the National Party. So he starts off, well, it's legal, and then as to whether he should do anything about it, well, no, because it's not in the interests of the National Party. Don't worry about the interests of Australia, the Parliament, just good form. Again, I'm just flabbergasted by the shamelessness of these guys. Continue. I don't know. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be so surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised they think that way. I'm just surprised that they can say it so openly. I, hmm. I wonder here if what they're that if if they have got used to the you know the right wing media cheer squad and the you know the sort of left bashing and all that sort of stuff they're so used to that that they they can now say the inside thoughts you know that Mm. they used to have to find a nice way to rap they you know they just don't actually feel like being accountable because you know who's listening anyway (laughs) yeah 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 i don't i don't have to be accountable all i have to do is get some you know have some beat up about you know boats arriving in you know australia on the day of the election and the the people will flock to us Mm. yeah you know yeah and and i would say the hard the hard lesson they're unfortunately not learning is that they they are now really struggling. Like there are so many people. I, it's just the whole thing. This whole topic has been a continued amusement over several days at work from people I would have expected to be liberal voters. Yep. But they're pissed off. Yep. Because they can see that if you've got a minister who's actually you know, especially in the case of something like home affairs, whose powers to deport and allow and authorise and not authorise and keep secret are vast. You know, they know very well how how much, you know, of the, the rest of the workings of that government department rely on knowing what the minister wants to do and, you know, taking action on it. And if you then got, oh, wait, someone else's minister, you know, Mm. yeah, they've been 
They've yeah. been wild about it. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the Murdoch and Costello press has not been supportive of Morrison. They've pretty much been negative about it. You know, they're throwing in bits like, come on, Albanese, stop talking about it and get on with the job. But to a large yeah. extent, they're, they're also negative about it because Morrison can't give them any favours. They're not needing the the scoop to be uh, handed to them. He can't offer them anything anymore, so they don't need to yeah, be nice to him anymore point. or do him any favours. So I think he's quite friendless now, yeah, as he mm. should be, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. in terms of the press, in terms of his own party, possibly his own family, who knows, but he's quite friendless as he should be, it seems. So, yeah. Well, I- I was disappointed as well on Monday. I found out that uh, Scott Morrison had been sworn in to do my job. Right. <laughs> the, the, like the worst part about it was that he didn't actually do anything. Mm. He just like, you know, swore himself in. Mm. And, but like he didn't actually contradict any of the things that I was, you know, that the decisions I made or the code that I wrote. So, you know, like he must have approved about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a crazy situation. So so we'll see how that pans out. It's we'll see how that pans out. But meanwhile, Albo is he's going okay, I think. And did you see the scene with him at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney? No. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, you're about to see it. So he's in the theatre, people spot him there. And and this is almost a bit of a Bob Hawke type of moment happening here. He basically skulls a beer for the crowd type of thing. Right. And because the crowd was egging him on and then they're giving a big cheer. Like, it was a pretty big positive yeah, response. Hawk, yeah. Big hawk vibe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a theatre. It's a lefty crowd for sure. But, and of course, you know, had Morrison in his heyday showed up there, there was no way he would get that sort of support. But... It's still quite an impressive just show of genuine support from a theatre crowd, I think. Yeah. Mm. I, don't know. I don't know if I think that theatre goers are all sort of oh, lefties come, oh, otherwise than, other than just, you know. That they, if they're not, thing. they should be. <laughs> if, like we all think they all should be. Well, well given, <laughs> given the way that the coalition abandoned the arts, Sure. For sure. nine years. And, and like has, completely abandoned them. And and that's not like just a new policy. Mm. The arts funding for mm. all of you know from the coalition has always been dropped, has you know, and yeah. it's been considered unnecessary. So And you know why? I see it as I don't have any like I don't know, but I guess I see it as the arts also criticises and the one thing I think that characterises conservative conservatives is that they do not like to be criticised. Mm. My theory is that it's like universities. They don't think there's any votes for them there, so why waste money on that sector? Keep it for the people yeah. who vote for you. I think that's... Yeah, yeah, I also mm. agree with that. Mm. So, yeah. I, I I, also, I suppose I also think that there, you know, there's an element of a sort of culture wars 
in there oh you know the those elites you know going to their opera and their their dance performances and you know yes like we should be concerned about the ordinary australians who have a beer and you know consider watching kath and kim to be the height of entertainment you know yes this is the problem they always thought of the ordinary australian as as a tradie as a blue collar it was never a a nurse or a school teacher, or a a sound person at a stage mm. in the Enmore Theatre, or a or an actor, or somebody like that. They were never considered working Australians, mm. so they have a very different view of that. Mm. The other little thing that I, the vibe that I kind of pick up out of that is that it really reminds me of I think one of the things that Albanese said when he opened Parliament was which was that, you know, he want he wants to have a parliament that the Australian people respect. Mm. And when we see the Australian Parliament being respectable, getting stuff done, solving these problems, working together, we can go, yeah, okay, I can respect that guy. <laughs> he's it's, he's he's doing the right thing. It's a symbiotic relationship between the people on the parliament. Yeah. So mm, mm, mm. yeah. Now contrast this. So everybody's well, you hadn't seen it, but the general response to that is, well, good on you, Albo, for being at the theatre and having a beer and enjoying yourself. And contrast that, Paul. Did you see the furor over the Finnish Prime Minister, a female I, uh, Prime Minister. I saw reports of it, but I didn't mm. pick up what she'd actually done wrong. Well, she Why had she the, a drug test or something She like had that. the temerity to dance in front of a camera with some friends at a private party and was just gyrating around as people do to the camera and having a good time and... And this just shocked too many people that a prime minister could be. She's quite youthful, and it shocked too many Finns. Finn, fin, I, I, I think Did it? from yeah. I, well, I think from talking to a Finnish friend of mine and following the general line of Finnish jokes, the thing that they might have been most outraged about was that there were actually more than one person in the same room there. Right, Finns are not communicative and they're not like the trope is that they are grumpy hermits you you, you're you're 30 meters away and that's close enough thank you very much (laughs) but it's the happiest country in the world paul it is it is every time Um, that survey came out just a week or two ago again they're always at the top they are the happiest uh, and i don't think there's a lot of general like i think it's a you know it's playing up a stereotype yeah. in the way that all Australians drink too much beer kind mm. of thing. But, yeah, it's... Anyway, I, I think I there was there was a bit of a thing where they said they could vaguely hear in the background a reference to flour and there was an allegation that flour was code for mm, some sort okay. of powdery illegal yeah. drug and she then went and had a drug test to prove that she had not taken an illegal drug just to say to people... Here you yeah, go, okay. done on blood tests. But that's what it reached. That's the stage it got to. That So just a contrasting situation where just a relatively young woman just having a good time 
as you're allowed to. Mm. You're not expected to work all the time as a PM and, and a different Finnish response. Prime Minister, like the Finnish people are very mm. progressive and mm. they have elected a young progressive Prime Minister. So, yeah. 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 So, so anyway. Dance on, I say. Yeah. So contrast that. I can remember AOC was criticised for a, a, a video she did dancing on a rooftop at some point, and she just got these hardline conservatives going. Well, she's just not a serious person because she's dancing. And but people- so, so how much of that do you think is just the regular outrage machine, you mm. know, of it's just like it, it's the attack that I see on anyone that they don't like. They just find anything that we can even make up that will be objectionable about, objectionable about them. They're, they're not serious. They're too serious. They're, they're not well-educated. They're too well-educated. Anything, mm. just as long as we can criticise it and, and you know, cross our arms and look all upright. Yeah. And you can't please some people. People have a stick up their bum, but, you know. <laughs> There's definitely some people you just can't please. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting yeah. contrast between the interesting contrast, yeah. Australian PM and the Finnish PM. So they can swap notes when they're at some sort of conference in the future. Mm. Mm, mm. Um, maybe we could get her and Jacinta Ardern and Theresa May to have like a dance-off. Yeah, Theresa May? So, she, yeah. Didn't she do that stage? So, like, she was walking onto the stage, yeah, and, a little... and they had some sort of number, and she was dancing around a bit. It's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. So, anyway. um, yep. Okay. Now, next topic. Moving, um, moving away from politicians is solar generals. I was going to skip the governor general. <laughs> we'll go back sure. to the governor general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's a tricky one with the governor general. I haven't quite got my head around. I sort of gave my view the other day. It seems like with the early appointments, the Governor-General wasn't involved at all. And it seemed that with the, when Christian Porter was there, that they did it as an administrative thing without even the Governor-General. And the later appointments involved the Governor-General and he's saying, well, it's not his job to monitor the Gazette and make sure things are printed and he's just there to do what he's told. So... He obviously knew, mm, though, that it was being kept secret because any Governor-General just should be watching the general news and should have been aware of that this was not being talked about. I mean, it just it doesn't really fly with me that the Governor-General had, hadn't even thought about it not being publicised. So hmm. you got any thoughts? It is also... Very hard because, like, the Governor General doesn't write his diary. This is the job for secretaries and, you know, people. And, yes, it becomes part of the the record. The fact that it didn't make it onto the record really makes me feel that there's actually some, like, so, you know, just to pick an arbitrary example, Scott Morrison has deliberately gone to them saying, you cannot tell anyone about this. Looks you can't like publish it on the Gazette. Keep it quiet, it Do looks not. like. Yeah. Given that all sorts of things like, you know, he hands out first prize to a dog at a dog show or something, and that appears in the Gazette. Like, there's yeah. a lot of detailed yeah. stuff in there that's quite inane, and the fact that 
a major thing like appointing a minister doesn't make it. It all seems like something intentional has happened. But we won't know until further things come out, which they probably will at some stage. It also makes me, I think it, it makes a good argument then to say, well, if the Governor General's sole function uh, is just to go out and have, you know, give medals to dogs and, you know, have open public buildings and things like that, it is not actually to question the mes- the mechanisms and the processes of government when they happen then we don't actually need a Governor-General with that power. Mm. You know, we could just elect the, you know, the building opener-in-chief and, you know, that's their function, mm. right? Yeah. You know, I think I heard an argument that governments have been keen to appoint ex-military people and one of the reasons is that military people are yes-men, essentially, like they just mm. do what they're told. That's a culture that, that when somebody is, is superior to you in rank or whatever, you just do what you're told and that's it. Whereas mm. if you were appointing, you know, ex-high court judges or people like that, they would be more likely to say, hang on a minute, what's going on Wait, here? What? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good argument as to why the military should not be involved in these appointments. As, I... I'm not a good cultural fit. Mixed on that, in that I actually don't, I don't see, I don't actually feel any. If anyone's selecting the governor general, because we better choose one that make you know, that takes orders, so that when we have to appoint myself as a secret minister for everything they'll do what they say, is a pretty long draw to bow, a bow to draw. No, it's uh, not feel- because it would be let's appoint a yes man in case we need a yes man for some unforeseen event where we're like they may not have had specifically in mind this thing, but it would be are you going to be compliant? Are you going to go and do the things I say and are you going to shut up if I tell you to shut up? You know, in the back of their, just, maybe not overt, yeah. but just... Maybe, like, I wonder how much the Liberal Party feels the fear of the Governor-General in the same way that the Labor Party remembers Kerr. I think they all remember it. And they all think, I don't want one of those. A contrarian GG. Yeah, but I... My hypothesis here is that the Liberal Party were well served by a Governor General that that I don't know who chose Kerr, but they were well suited by a Governor General who was part of the establishment. Mm. And I I wonder if the Liberal Party feels the same fear that a rogue Governor General could you know, dissolve Parliament if, you know, a couple of Liberal Party mates went over and have a, had a beer with him on that Saturday they, afternoon. They, they would have that fear if they appointed one from academia. So that's why they appoint one from the military, you know. So 
And, you know, if there was a leftover Labor appointee as Governor-General who was of that ilk, then they would be worried if they took power. So I think both sides of politics would would look at the Governor-General and think, what sort of we got yeah, here? Okay. Mm. Anyway, yeah. in the chat room, Jungle Juice Jingle, Jungle <laughs> says, being ex-military, mm. I can attest to your statement being somewhat correct. That's good to know. Jungle okay. juice. Yep. Jungle juice, jungle. Give me some more of that jungle juice. Yeah. And just previously in the chat room, some of the people had mentioned about friendly Geordies and just questioning whether they like the guy or not. I mean, he is he is not to everyone's taste, I get it, but he's at least appealing mm. to a younger demographic and you know, it's you've got to have all different types appealing to all different demographics, and I think he does what he's doing quite well. Even though I wouldn't necessarily sit down and watch him all the time myself. So, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I I have found I, I I like the points that he's trying to make most of the time, mm-hmm. but I I'm I can't really. Get I can't agree on his delivery, but I do really like the YouTube channel called Swollen Pickles and another one called Knights in Shining Llama, and both of those are very good. Pickles is more kind of making funny funny videos of mashups of... I think he did a mashup of ex-premier of New South Wales. Gladys Berejiklian. Uh, Gladys saying... All the times that she said, we're not going into lockdown. Oh, we're going into lockdown. Oh, we're not going into lockdown. There's right. no such thing as a lockdown in New yeah, South Wales. Yeah, yeah. I think well, I have seen lockdown. that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think you've just got to have all different types. So it's a bit like in the secular community. I think we've got various different types running around. So, yeah, you mm. just mm. Uh, you don't need them all to be the same. Now, I just want yeah. to move on to energy, Paul. And yes. so... This is from ABC. For about half an hour on Friday, I'm not sure if that was last Friday or the Friday before, the national energy market caught a glimpse of what a renewables-powered future might look like and solar energy eclipsed coal as the lead source of power across the energy market, which includes Mm. all states except WA and the Northern Territory. It's not the first time it happened, but it's the first time it's happened under relatively normal conditions. So there was no shortage of coal-fired power and it wasn't the sunniest time of the year. So Mm. it was a significant sort of business-as-usual kind of day and solar dethroned coal. So Mm. that was good. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of things, these these gradual little incremental changes help people get used to the idea that actually, you know, this solar thing isn't that bad after all. Mm. <laughs> so when your electric bike is finished, yep. is it going to be powered from a solar rooftop system you have? Is that what? So I do have solar panels on the roof. Do they get sun in Canberra? Sufficient? Occasionally. <laughs> not this Not this winter, I can tell you. Right. But so... This is where I don't want to have people hate me too much. But oh. so Canberra in 2007 introduced, in order to sort of bootstrap the solar industry here, introduced a gross feed-in tariff. And so I, and we were lucky enough for a variety of complicated reasons because I was out of work for six months. We were lucky enough to be able to afford, to afford and to, 
fit into the program and we get 52 50 yeah 52 cents a kilowatt yep. kilowatt hour for every kilowatt hour we generate wow. whether or not the house is using any power any of that power or not whether you're using it or not yes hang on a minute so we you could be paid. generating it and using yep. it and yep. you will be paid yes <laughs> what that I, I told you you'd hate me <laughs> You're kidding. How long is that going to go for? 25 years. Wow. That's and amazing. Believe me, it's it bootstrapped the 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 solar industry in Canberra. Wow. There's there's a friend of mine, very famous or famous in the open source world, a guy called Andrew Tridgell. He he happened to have a house which was a, large, a very large area of north-facing roof. And he worked out that he could install 30 kilowatts of solar panels on his house. He drew down for his superannuation because being the guy he is, he'd done the math and mm. worked out that it would pay a better rate of return than his superannuation was. Yep. So that is part of his superannuation. And if you know where to look in Canberra, you can see the bright splash on the satellite picture where his house has reflected the sun back to the satellite and yeah. it completely wipes out that section of the, the street. My, my mate Noel, he was the same. He figured it out and loaded up his house in Brisbane and mm. very, very early adopter, one of the very earliest. Mm. And he was driving in his car and he got a phone call from, from the electricity company that he was dealing with and they said, look, just calling to talk to you about your bill. You owe us $5,200 and just want to know what arrangements you're going to make to pay it. And he said, right. are you looking at the screen right now? And the guy said, yeah. He said, you see where it's got $5,200? Is there a kind of like a minus sign in front of the dollar sign? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, there is. That's weird. And Noel said, yeah, that's because you owe me $5,200 and I'd like to know what arrangements you're going to make to pay me. They'd never written a cheque before. They had no, no like this is foreign territory for them. Probably didn't even have the mechanism to do it. Yeah. yeah. So he had figured out he could buy old cottages in rural areas in northern New South Wales and he wouldn't have to rent them out. He could just whack solar on them and that would pay for these properties and pay them off. And he wow. was actually getting contracts organised when the New South Wales scheme changed and so he didn't yeah. proceed with it. But he had done that same math and had figured out, yeah. So mm, um, mm. there we go. That's that's my two yeah. solar stories. So yeah. So <laughs> okay. So you are going to be feeding electricity into your electric motorbike, and you're actually going to be paid for the electricity that goes into it. For the for the for the privilege. Wow. I mean, you know, the disadvantage is that we still. We still pay, you know, I think what what's our top rate, 20-something, 20 21, 22 cents a kilowatt at peak times. Right. So when I had the, the Mark 1, I'd have a, have that on a timer so it would charge up on the sort of 
off-peak cycle. Not that we actually, yeah, not that mm. it was actually like paid like that, but just to sort of just shift the power. But yeah, the 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 solar thing, I also think is also a statement of a lot. It shows that a lot of the bigger solar projects are now starting to come come in and get traction where before especially with the previous government it was previous federal government it was very difficult for the companies to get sort of basically to be allowed to generate because the you know if an if a new project came in they would be curtailed in favor of the existing generator which was always coal so mm. and you know that's just like that's the opposite of what should, what we should be doing we should be turning off coal fired power stations and keeping solar power but you know mm. actually i've got one other electricity solar anecdote power killing birds chris mm. i've got one what other you talking about yeah i've got one other electricity anecdote for you so my son worked for a company that was involved in supplying electricity into the market and they had entered into some forward contracts to supply at a certain price over the next year, two years and three years, uh, mm-hmm. which would satisfy their financiers, that their financiers knew they had this money coming in. So, so it wasn't their entire production that they were committing, but just to sort of hedge, I guess, and mm. so they had put it in at a certain price. Now, I can't remember the exact figures, but let's just assume it was, say, $80 a megawatt or whatever it's called. Yeah. And so that was their commitment to supply that to the energy market over the next three years. Now, when the price goes up for electricity, there's two things. First of all, you think to yourself, damn, wish I hadn't agreed to sell it at 80 because – now I could sell it at 200 if I wasn't committed to this cheap price. Mm. But the other thing is, say the price has moved to 200 then the, the national energy market regulator says, you know what, there's a risk that you might go bust and we've got this great deal with you where you're committed to supplying it at 80 whereas at the moment we have to buy it at 200 from everyone else. So you mm. have to pay us a bond of 120 so that we know that we're not going to miss out on a deal with you going bust. And that's part of the deal that's done when people hedge with the national electricity market, that if you agree at a price and the price increases, they say to you, cough up some money because in case you go bust and we have to buy it from somebody else, we're not going to be happy. I think I heard something about that. Yeah. And so it's this extraordinary situation where the price is going up and these people have to scramble and find money to give to the national energy market to cover the difference. Mm. They'll eventually get it back, but, but yeah, they have to come up with this, in this in the, as a cash flow problem. Mm. And it also makes me think of... All of uh, there are so many companies. I mean, not only the aluminium smelters and but you know, big shopping centers and even the state of the ACT has done a power purchasing agreement. So they basically say, okay, 
you know, external company, we agree to purchase power at say, say $80 a megawatt hour. Mm. And when, if the, if the pay, price goes up, then you profit off that. So if the oh, price goes down, yep. then you profit because yep. we could have bought it at 60, but yep. you we're, we're paying 80. And if the price goes up, then we win. Mm. And I think the, I think the ACT last I heard was around $65 a megawatt hour. But basically all of the large power consumers are doing these deals because they want to lock in that, mm. you know, if, if there's a generator that can supply them for 80, then yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take our chance on how, yep. how the market looks. Yeah. And, and the irony in a way for the ACT, which is, you know, very, you know, very con- committed to going green, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and things like that is that, if they had all solar, solar would be free, right? And therefore, they would be they would be paying money to to use that free power. Mm. But so far, it hasn't happened yet. Mm. Now, there's a website called renewaconomy.com.au, and it's had an interesting article about nuclear power, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But in the meantime, while I was there, it had this interesting little link that you can go to. And at any point in time during the day or night, you can look at the national energy market and see which states are using how much electricity and what type of mm. electricity that they're using. So, so yeah, if you're into electricity markets and wondering what's going on, then renewaconomy.com.au interesting link that you can just see what's going on with electricity during the day. I thought that was an interesting mm, one. Mm. And yeah. I just wanted to pick Chris in the chat has said, hypothetically, can I store power and when they need it, I can then choose to sell it? And the answer is, unfortunately for retail customers, not yet. Right. But there's two parts to this. Firstly, I mean, that is what say a a pumped storage hydro project does or like you know the the hornsdale big battery that south australia put in they do exactly that so if you're a big company chris you can for us regular people you can't get like a a power bank and buy power at the in the mid part of the day and then put it back you know sorry the you know late at night yeah Put it back in the middle of the day, or the, it'll the detect, peak period. It'll detect that that's what you're doing. It'll it'll well somehow it's it, got to come from the direct from the solar panel, not via a battery. Is what you're saying? Well, the problem is that you don't actually. So, firstly, as far as I know, I don't think there are any batteries out there that allow you to do that, hmm. and you're probably not connect, allow, allowed to jigger around with the firmware on the batteries to make them do that. Right. But even then, you're probably only going to get whatever your feed-in tariff is anyway. So, you know, you might buy, like, you know, for most of us, we're buying power at 20 cents, you know, 21 cents a kilowatt, and even at off-peak, we might be paying 12 cents a kilowatt, and our feed-in rate is more like 7 cents a kilowatt. Right. 
Gotcha. But yeah. the other thing that's coming but, but is... Hang on, the feed-in okay. rate is 7, but you said you were selling it back to the... Okay. So if you're really, really lucky and you happen to oh, be that's on you. The, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's you. Look, for the... Rest of the, for the rest of the people, you're right. pretty much, you know. Yeah. But the thing that is coming for Chris is vehicle to grid. So what that allows you to do, and we, we've sort of seen some of that coming with things like the Ford F-150 Lightning and other vehicles where basically you can power an ordinary 240-volt device off your car Vehicle grid says vehicle to grid allows you to not only power your house using the same plug. So you plug it in in the same way that you normally do to charge it. And then the vehicle system and the house system say, oh, I need some power now. So I'll supply the house instead. But they are allowing, they're, they're looking, there's a our trial project at the moment, looking at how this works. It's run by the Australian Australian National University, and it's looking at how this would actually be implemented in practice. Does Do you get to do power arbitrage on a day-to-day basis, or do is that, you know, is that pointless? What what would the, you know, what, what should the software look like? Mm. What controls should we have all that sort of stuff so they got to do it's some a working m- models on how that will affect the market mm. yeah, no yeah, yeah 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 e- even just sort of to the the point of the, because the other part of that process is the ability basically to for the grid to say it's peak period time and i really don't want you sucking 22 kilowatt hours out of the grid right now please right yep yep Okay, um, so, there's lots of yeah. clever things that are going to be worked out and even the car technology will go, I know your diary and I know you're not driving anywhere tomorrow, so I know I can use the battery in a certain way with that information or I know you aren't going to need the battery full tomorrow and therefore, yeah, there's lots of yeah, interesting yeah, things yeah. will happen that way. Mm. Are you Do you know Saul Griffith? Have you heard of the name Saul Griffith? I think I have heard of the name, but I don't okay. know yeah, what he, context. He wrote a book called Electrify Everything. Right. And so he talks about all that sort of last, like the the last 10% of all of the uses. But he also has, I think, three electric car conversion projects on the go. And he's he's selling them to his wife as, good news, we get a, a big battery for our house and I also get to drive it around. Right, yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's going to be a significant player, these these car batteries, in 20 or 30 mm. years when there's more of them around. So mm. now some people think nuclear is the answer to perceived electricity shortages. And I know in the past, John, listener John is keen on it, and my brother was also into these sort of small modular reactors, the nuclear and there's an article from this Renew Economy website, which I stumbled across, and I'll read a bit about it. Before Peter Dutton's coalition charge off into yet another inquiry into the merits of nuclear power, and of course, coalition is spruiking nuclear power, as is 
Sky News. Funny how they didn't do anything about it in the nine years that they were in power. Indeed. And suddenly... Now it's... Yes. They really should just shut up for 12 months because that's just the standard (laughs) response. You just can't come up with bright ideas now. Just, Just go away for 12 months and read and we'll hear from you later. Anyway, this article says they might want to take a closer look at what's happening in Europe, where the failure of France's huge nuclear power plant fleet is causing bigger problems for EU power supplies than Russia's withheld gas supply. France has been delivering just a fraction of its energy production potential in recent months, and overnight the situation got worse when French power producer EDF announced another three power plants would curtail output because of rising temperatures. Rivers have become too hot in the latest heat wave to be used to cool the reactors. So the majority of France's 56 nuclear reactors are currently throttled down or taken offline due to a combination of scheduled maintenance, erosion damage... That's a worry. Yes, and cooling water shortages due to recurring heat waves. And mm. this problem has caused wholesale electricity prices to soar and costing the French government a mozza because they subsidise power bills. So the cost of making up the difference is now going to be $24 billion, Australian $40 billion this year alone. And so, yeah, so one of the arguments for coal has been it's reliable and consistent and We've had problem with coal-fired generators actually having Exploding. maintenance issues and fires and whatever. And we could Cal have I the been. same with nuclear. It's not like you just switch these things mm. on and they're good for the next 30 years. They've got issues as well. So this baseload power that people talk about, you know, if we – for start start, there aren't small nuclear stations that modular. are actually modular ones yeah. that are working – they're twice the cost of a bigger nuclear situation anyway. But mm. you've still got no guarantees. You still have issues with them. So you're still going mm. to need backups. And, you know, we're looking at Ukraine where there's these attacks on the nuclear power plants. Who's to say that, you know, down mm. the track we're not involved in some armed conflict and if you were trying to, you know, cause a problem for a country, it's definitely a target. It would make sense that... With at least solar and these other renewables, it's a spreading of the risk. There's multiple generators in multiple areas. And just like Scott Morrison wanting multiple backups of ministries, this is a case, though, (laughs) where you are actually spreading the risk. And, you know, that is a factor that Mm. people need to take into account. And I don't know if you've said it before, but I think you've probably said you like you've kind of touched on that issue i've certainly heard it heard it said elsewhere that the problem with small modular reactors is on the one hand if you're going to install them like you know they're small they're modular they can go anywhere well let's just install them in every country town Mm. oh well now we have a thousand sites that we need to defend rather than a dozen Mm. And, and, and they're twice as expensive to, as normal. Yeah. Yep. And if you then want to secure those sites, well, obviously what you do is you build large sites, right, 
exactly like a coal-fired power station, which mm. concentrates all of the generation in one place, which means you need distribution, transmission. So, mm. you know, it's it's also incredibly bad for security. And I can't help but notice that none of these reactors have it, you know, we don't even have the infrastructure to generate the, the like to make the reactor, let alone make its fuel. Where are we going to get that from? Oh, from overseas. Mm. Jolly good then. Like where 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 we buy our oil from. Right. <laughs> we can't use the fuel that we mine here. Like it's got to be processed in a it, way. You've got to refine it. Which Where's we don't have done, the technology overseas? for. Yeah, for and, sure. Yeah. And and you can absolutely bet that a you know the com- the countries that do do this, Britain, France, and the US, are not going to let that kind of stuff walk out to places like Australia. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a bit where this whole change in the electricity market is, is a threat to big players and it allows so many smaller entrants. And for the coalition who like to support big players, big multinationals, big companies... Yeah. This democratisation of energy is not in the interests of the large capitalists. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and it's ironic to me that by democratisation there, what we're talking about is companies with only $20 million rather than $2 billion, mm. and they're still against it. Mm. Like it's not, you know, they've kind of lost the battle on rooftop solar, but, you know, they're still essentially saying well you know we want we don't we want to shut the large solar generators and the large wind farms and companies like that out of the electricity market as well in the chat room chris says chris you've been chatting away very well there come on someone else yes. some other people need to join yeah. chris chris says when i was a medical student at uni i visited the south sydney nuclear reactor and they said they could keep it cool with a garden hose I guess the other question, Chris, was how many houses could they power from that experimental nuclear reactor One that they have there? What, what's that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe as much as a toaster. Yeah, because there is a small reactor down there in Sydney for sort of research yeah. purposes. And, yeah, I guess the question, maybe Chris will come in with a comment, but, you know, just how much power was generated from that is the next question. Mm. Briefly, because, Paul, we've got to rattle through some topics to get to some by (laughs) 9 o'clock so I can then get into cultural Marxism and knock that over in half an hour. Like, let's (laughs) (laughs) just quickly, Anglican Church in New South Wales, they've split and so they've got basically conservative evangelical types who just can't get their head around same-sex marriage and just object to the change in the the teaching of the church. So they've broken away and created their own little subgroup. And the ones in favour of same-sex marriage are still part of the the major Anglican church, but rebel group that's broken away are the sort of crazy evangelicals who don't like same-sex marriage. And that will be interesting to see how the property is split up for the stuff that they own. so I was just wondering what they'd call themselves. And, of course, it's called the Diocese of the Southern Cross. Right. Because there's nothing like drawing nationalism <laughs> into a church, isn't there? Yeah, good point. It's, it's yeah, 
Yeah. Like it's not the the newer Angli- the newer Anglic- Anglican church or mm. the you know the brothers of West Sydney or whatever. No, no it's the Southern Cross. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Yeah. I, I, I at some point I, I know you want to rattle through things, so mm. I'll I'll just flag this. At some point, Trev, Trevor, I'd like to talk to you about positive nationalism. Positive nationalism. Hmm. Where you can be proud of your country. Yes. And not also have to be a and a fascist, a yes. you know, defended at all costs kind of person. But anyway, let's table oh, that. Let's move on. Oh, no, no, no. Positive nationalism. You're saying it's not possible to be, or you think it's uh... no. What what I'm what I'm saying is that we there is this stigma against people who are proud of the flag, who sing the national anthem, and things like that, as either being too patriotic or a bit wowserish and what it does is leaves the actual nationalism for the people that think that going you know heading off down with a couple of australian flags and bashing some lebanese people at kuji is a good sport Uh, so they've left a gap for people who want to be nationalist in a nice way because there isn't a, a soft nationalism. People are forced to choose the hard nationalism if they want to yeah, exhibit a yeah. bit of nationalism. Is that yeah? It, right? You know, it, it, you if you if you holding up an Australian flag, then you must be one of those people. And so mm. the people who aren't hide the flag and don't want to show it. You know, show yeah. it, but you know, do you have a feeling sh- you'd like to show the flag more, but you're you're being held <laughs> back? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> As it, as it happens, I've got one right here. No, it just occurs to me that that the, you know, a lot of the outpourings of sympathy for, you know, for the Bilawila family, for, you know, the the sort of Indigenous voice to, or the, at least the sort of recognition, the acknowledgement of refugees and asylum seekers tends to be pushed back on by a group of people who called themselves patriots. And the people who protested anti-vax, the sort of anti-mask mandates and anti-vaccinations mm were going around waving Australian flags and saying how it was un-Australian to, you know, wear masks or things like that. Yeah, so, sort of national flag waving, though, is is kind of one of the first boxes to tick for fascism, isn't it? Like, that's, that's, the, pro- that's the problem with it to some extent. Sorry, Don, two of his comment just completely distracted me there. Don, what you do with your underwear in your own time is your own problem. Mm. I, what, I I agree that if we're all told to line up on, you know, on, at the side of the street and wave the flag for the Prime Minister as he drives by or something like that, then, yeah, okay, that's an odd approach to nationalism. But I think on the other hand that say flying an australian flag in you know in one's front yard is not a you know but what's it saying is it saying we're such a good country and i'm proud of us 
Is, is that? I think is it, you can it's... acknowledge the flaws of Australia and still be proud of it, its successes. But, you know, it's like, well, is, every country can be proud. What, what country sure. couldn't be? It's, it's no, kind indeed. of, there's a little bit of, you know, part of our international relations is that we tend to not treat, when we're a country treating another country, it's a different dynamic to we as people treating other people. We, there's a sort of a selfishness and that we can exhibit as the country of Australia against other countries that we would never do as individuals with other individuals. Like, as individuals with our neighbours, we treat our individual neighbours far better and with a different view than we do as a country to our to our neighbours. I just, it's kind of like big deal. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we happen to, through sheer luck, be plopped on this particular patch of dirt on this particular planet with this particular ideology running around in this particular time mm-hmm. and there's a bunch yep. of really good people on other clumps of dirt scattered around and to sort of go, hey, we're here and this is our colour, you know, look at, I just don't get it myself. I Not because I, of bad feelings yeah. about Australia, but just. Yeah. I, I think I, like, I absolutely celebrate your cosmopolitan approach there to say we can, we can look at other countries and say they do good things too. You know that, and and certainly that jingoistic kind of God's own country. You know, nowhere could be possibly as good as any you know, as Australia. Yeah, that's that's a a, a trivial, a boring form of jingoism that tries to dress itself up as nationalism. But I think you can. But I think you're also you know like you're celebrating the the country that you live in and you admire our you know our the sports people and our intellectuals and our playwrights and our you know politicians that go out and do good in the world is it, is it any different to having the Brisbane Broncos flag in your front yard it's just saying i'm a member of this team i love my team yeah just, it's and, it's know. harder to do when when you are overseas to mm. hold up you know an Australian flag and say you know I'm at the Australia versus West Indies match in Jamaica and Kingston and mm. I'm gonna <laughs> hold up the, the Australian flag but like you can you can still be what what I want to differentiate between is you can be proud we can be proud of our successes without putting down anyone else mm. so you want to rate, make make some room for some positive nationalism yeah where it should be viewed as as that and nothing sinister and the problem is people are shying away yeah. from it because it's starting to have some potential well, if, if connotations be- because if we don't actively step in and say no this is this is nationalism is inviting refugees here nationalism is 
reaching out to our, you know, like, I'm proud as an Australian that we are reaching out to our First Nations people and, you know, going for reconciliation, things like the, if we don't, if we don't say that is what our form of nationalism or patriotism mm-hmm. is about, then it be, gets taken over by the Proud Boys. Yes. And by the the fascists and by yes it almost okay i get it It, yes unless good people start flying the flag then when you see a flag flying you're going to assume it's a bad person because the only people overtly flying the flag at the moment are some 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 nutters like if you saw a car driving down the freeway with some australian flags all over it you wouldn't be thinking yeah, so proud Australian. You'd be, you'd be thinking <laughs> crazy nutter. Sure, yeah, sure. I get you. If, if, I, we're allowing, if I saw an Australian yeah. flag in one corner of the rear view mirror, yeah. then, you know, yeah, okay. that's okay. That doesn't if, automatically label if, them. If there's more flags out there, then we'll be less likely to think a negative connotation. Right. Yep. I get that's, that. That sort of thing. Positive yeah. nationalism. Thank you, Paul. Right, quickly, we've done the church. Schism. We've done the church. There's a schism and they're going to have a, a problem. Well, they're just going to split and argue with each other over the next century, probably over <laughs> church assets. And there's been similar splits in Canada, US, Brazil, New Zealand, often involving protracted legal disputes over property rights. Crimea River, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely with you on that, in that it's, it really hard for me to have any sympathy sympathy with you know how their you know I don't know no that's that's too strong I I really sympathise with with the moderates who are who have been trying to say no we want you to actually be nice to be people for a change. And have the evangelicals say, no, 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 we want to go out there and tell everyone that this is our message and you must believe it, whether you like it or not. You know, I have I'm sympathy, I'm sympathetic to the moderates in that, but if it's just a schism in the church, then we've had lots of those and you know, we could probably get lots more. Mm. Just quickly, those crazy Japanese, apparently, Paul. In Japan, it's quite common that when you pick up your kid from daycare, they give you the kid plus the dirty nappies that the kids generated during the day. I was kind of vaguely worried when I read this that they'd kind of individually, like, labelled them and kept them separate so that, like, we know that your child generated these. A survey has shown a light on the common but rarely discussed practice with about 40% of towns and cities in Japan saying they demand the guardians of the infant clientele take their used nappies with them. And this woman who was interviewed says, why should I take them home? (laughs) And they're kind of scratching their heads as to why this practice has continued and there seems to be maybe about 49% of them do it and... They think the reason is it gives the parents the opportunity to check their child's health by examining their stools. While a smaller number said they don't have facilities or budget to dispose of the nappies themselves. So there you go, dear listener. If you've got a baby in childcare and you're picking 
that baby up at some stage in the future. If you were Japanese, <laughs> you might well be picking up a bag of dirty nappies that you'd be <laughs> half expected to examine before disposing <laughs> of. All right, Paul's coming back in a minute. While he's away, this will let me actually rattle through some topics. Mum and Dad, housing investors, if you'd like to know the occupation of the of the top 10 occupations for people, mums and dads who are housing investors. Number one, surgeon. Number two, anaesthetist. Three, internal medicine specialist. Four, psychiatrist. Five, dentist. Six, school principal. Seven, other medico. So there you go. Six of the top seven are in some sort of medical thing. Eight is an engineering manager. Nine is a mining engineer. And ten... You'll be pleased to know Chris and Jungle Juice Jungle is an ADF officer as number 10 in terms of property investment mums and dads in Australia. Paul's got his headphones on. I just rattled through the top 10 of people likely to have property investors. Huge overrepresentation of medical people there. And technically they could be both... You know, either a mother or a father, and te- therefore technically they, you know, would count as mum and dad. But no, mm. it's absolutely not what we. It's not what the Liberal Party tell us are the little Aussie Aussie battlers, you know, mm. with their three, you know, income properties. Yes. Yep. All right. Um, another time. I wasn't even planning to do it in this time, but I'm going to talk about baby boomers briefly at some stage as a generation that is a good argument against democracy. I read this book, Paul. Right. I'm always intrigued by your approaches to (laughs) these kinds of arguments. This book is titled A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. Good title. Here's the thesis is that um, because baby boomers was such a large bump in the population and politicians wanted their votes, essentially as the boomers moved through their life cycle, the laws were changed so as to suit boomers at the expense of other generations. So yeah. right down to changing the voting age and and then taxation changes that were made when boomers were basically accumulating and earning high money, the tax breaks were on earning, and and now that mm, they're cashing yeah. in in terms of retirement and stuff, the tax rules are benefiting them. And it's quite an expose and essentially kind of a compelling argument that politicians with an eye on votes were crafting legislation to suit the most number of people, which is democracy, but it ended up favouring a particular cohort, the baby boomers, the expense of others. So that will be for another time. Mm. But on the face of it, it sounds reasonable as a theory, as a hypothesis. I'm glad you put it as the politicians decided to favour them because I don't feel like the baby boomers as a generation just upped and decided that we're going to enact these policies. It was the politicians that that did that. True, but if you were to look at, um, you know, a generation that, say, 
let's nationalize let's let's sell off the national assets of the you know the the railway the the things that have been built up by previous generations oh we'll sell them we'll get a a sweetener into our economy for the next two or three years but long term for future generations it's it's a bad move essentially it's a it's a selfish yeah. move by the current generation if you decide to sell off the commons and sure. and not sure. restrict it so so yeah but i feel like that's applied at all times that the commons have been sold off yes but when the commons was a real commons going back more into the 17 1800s it was more a case of we need to protect the commons and mm. we need to recognise it's there for everybody and protect it and stop people encroaching on it. Whereas in more recent times, we've lost the recognition of the commons and gone, oh, what, you mean I can buy some cheap Telstra shares that John Howard and Julia Gillard are selling? Great. Don't worry that down the track we won't have a telecommunications network owned by the commons. It'll be owned by some private enterprise. So that's the sort of thing where you can accuse a generation of being selfish by cashing in stuff that isn't theirs to cash in. I agree, but again, I would push back on the idea that it was just solely for the baby boomers in that, you know, the... I would, I guess I would argue here that, you know, Reaganomics and Thatcherism privatise everything philosophy uh, came at a time where both the unions in the US and the and the UK were very strong and that was the right wings right wing was right wing of politics method of you know killing that dragon sell those off privatize them make them into to you know, take away that the power of those those unions, yep. and build up a, a bunch of myths about you know doll bludges and whatever. But like you know, we we saw you know whether it's big mining leases in the fifties and sixties up to you know privatized companies in the eighties and nineties and even the two thousands. And I guess I would argue that. The, the latest one is the, the creation of things like a carbon market where carbon certificates can be traded as if they aren't just purely for the purpose of deferring a unit of CO2 emission. Mm-hmm. No, they're something that could, you know, increase and decrease in value and, you know, who knows what speculators, you know, money speculators could get out of it, you know. All of these things are taking and, you know, which are basically, which basically start in the commons and privatising them. And they've been, that's suited capital very well. Mm. I mean, who who's, seems to be least wanting to do something about climate change? Which generation? The older or the younger generation? The boomers or the uh, millennials? Sure. The, yeah. the boomers are the current, mm. you know, sort of... Mm. holder of that stick yeah but even then mm. you know i mean my my mum and dad grew up in that generation and both of them are 
you know, dad was, mum is, passionate environmentalists. Mm. So I don't, I don't feel like ah, the, your lived experience isn't an argument, Paul. It's just no, sure. But what I'm not. all I'm saying is that it is not the boomers are not universally of one mind. No, I'm not saying they are, but you know there are trends that are pretty clear. So, sure, yeah. and I would add that you know my two people that I know who I have, let's say, ceased to associate with, told me at one point. I think when they, and it was about 2013, that they were quite proud that they would had voted for Tony Abbott because they were just about to retire and that would mean that the, the Liberal Party was going to be a better government to, to manage the economy and keep their superannuation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, what, you voted Labor for 40 years and right. now you've just Switched. changed your vote. Because you're hoping that the other side do you a better deal, it d- doesn't sound like you're. It sounds like you're putting, like, exactly what John Howard did right at the start of the episode. Yes, you know, putting political expedience, yeah, you know, like personal yes. interest, yes. as at, at the but forefront. For Howard and Barnaby, it was what's not what's in the best interest of my party, not what's in the best interest of my country. Yeah, yeah. Well, dear listener. At this point, we launched into a discussion of cultural Marxism, which took another hour and a half. So I decided to split the podcast at this point, and I'm going to hold over that discussion until uh, the 6th of September, which is the time when I'm in Sydney. So that'll be good to have that uh, recorded, and I'll distribute it then. If you can't wait, you could just go onto YouTube because the entire thing uncut, all three and a half hours of this episode is there, so you could go straight to it there and listen. Otherwise, if you're just listening to the audio podcast as they come into your podcast app, you can hold tight and the Cultural Marxism episode will appear in a couple of weeks. Okay.
Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.